Well, are you ready? We're going to have a good time. You know, always, like I said, the marriage meeting is, you know, my favorite, favorite meeting of the year because so many times, I guess one of the reasons I like it is because of the instant gratification. Because you can instantly see changes in people's lives with the marriage meeting. Because a lot of times people will put into practice instantly what they're taught and they will instantly see changes in their lives. So, you know, uh, I like it. I was thinking about something, though, and I was thinking about, you know, your flesh doesn't understand everything about marriage ever. But I was thinking about the Lord must really, really, really have a sense of humor to put people together to be married. And the reason that I say that is because think about this. He did it here on the earth, but when you get to heaven, there is no marriage. It's like he learned his lesson. No, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. I don't know why there's no marriage in heaven, but no, marriage is an awesome, wonderful, great, great thing. And anybody that tells you that it's not just doesn't know God. Because God has a plan to make it just awesome and wonderful and great. And uh, it's just finding out the ways that God intended for us to do it and putting those things into practice. And then if we do that, we'll have great and awesome marriages. And there's a way to do it. So let's just get started because when Keith saw how many pages I had, he just kind of looked at me. So we may be here for four hours tonight. So... um, Let's just hit it. Hebrews 11.32, the living Bible, guys. And we'll just get right to it. Hebrews 11.32, living Bible. Well, how much more do I need to say? It would take too long to recount the stories of the faith of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and all the other prophets. These people all trusted God as a result They won battles, they overthrew kingdoms, ruled their people well, they received what God had promised them, and they were kept from the harm of the dens of lions. And in in a fiery furnace, some through their faith escaped death by the sword, some were made strong again after they had been weak or sick, others were given great power in battle, they made whole armies turn and run away, and some women through faith received their loved ones back from the dead again. Others trusted God and were beaten to death, preferring to die rather than to turn from God and be free, trusting they would rise to a better life afterward. Some were laughed at and their backs cut open with whips and others were chained in dungeons. Some died by stoning and some by being sawed in two. Others were promised freedom if they would renounce their faith. Then they were killed by the sword. Some went about in skins of sheep and goats, wandering over the deserts and mountains, hiding in dens and caves. They were hungry and they were sick and they were ill-treated, too good for this world. Verse 39, and these men of faith, though they trusted God, won his approval. Say that with me, won his approval. None of them received all of what God had promised them. For God wanted them to wait and share the even better rewards that were prepared for us. I want to talk a little bit about God's heroes, men of faith. I want to talk about why the world seems to be lacking a little bit in strong men today. 
And don't be concerned. I think you're going to like it. And I know a lot of times it seems as though I pick on men on my night, but I get to pick on the ladies on their night. So just uh, hang with me just a minute. So if you would, turn with me to Ephesians 5.21, and we're going to read our marriage scriptures. You know I don't let you go too far without reading those. Does the world have ammo for all the funny, bad things they do with their commercials putting men down? Do they have any ammunition for all the bad ways that they they make fun of men today? Can we diffuse all that? Can we take it away from them? Can we make it to where that they don't have that ammunition that men are who God called them to be? I think we can. I think we can show them who a true man of God is supposed to be and not who the world says it's supposed to be. And show the world who a man of God is supposed to be. This is Ephesians 5.21. It says, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husband as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their husband, own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle, any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loves his wife loves himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. All the guys in here, I would like for you to read verse 25 with me. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church. Now that last part. And gave himself for it. That's the first point I want to get to. But I want to read you this, and I think you'll understand it a lot better. The same way Jesus did things is the way that even Keith said last night, we're, our example is Christ and the church. And that's what we're supposed to base everything off of. So we're going to get into some of that now and tonight. So look with me, if you would, at Philippians, and then we'll get right into it. Philippians 2.6 I'm trying to get you some word in you so that we can talk about some of this stuff. This is, uh, I think this is the Weiss. I guess I deleted what it was, but I think it's the Weiss translation. Philippians 2, 6 through 11. It says, this is the mind which is also in Christ Jesus, who has always been and at present continues to subsist in a mode of being in which he gives outward expression of his essential nature, that of an absolute deity 
which expression comes from his and is truly representative of his inner being, that of absolute deity, and who did not, after weighing the facts, consider it a treasure to be clutched. In other words, he didn't consider his deity a treasure to be clutched and retained at all hazards. At this being equality with God in the expression of divine essence, but he emptied himself and made himself void, having taken the outward expression of a bond slave which expression comes from and is truly representative of his nature, entering into a new state of existence, that of mankind, and being found to be in the outward guise as a man, he stooped very low, having become obedient to God the Father to the extent of death, even such death that is upon the cross because of the voluntary act of self-renunciation, God also super-exalted him to be the highest rank and power and graciously bestowed upon him the name that's above every name in order that that recognition of that name, which is Jesus possesses, every knee should bow in the things of heaven and the things on the earth and the things under the earth in order that every tongue should and plainly, openly agree the fact that Jesus is Lord, resulting in the glory of God the Father. In other words... Jesus was deity, and he emptied himself and came to the earth and took upon himself the form of a bond slave, entering into a new existence and a new state of being so that he could be who we needed him to be so that we could receive what we needed to receive. And because he did that very thing, God raised him to a higher state of glory that we, every person now, bows to him. That is exactly how God planned that it be for a husband and a wife. It is that the guy and the woman get married. So many times when men and women get married, the guy brings thoughts of the way things were before he was married. Mom and dad did it this way. This is the way I was brought up. This is the things I like. This is what I like to do. This is how I think. This is what I think about. This is what I want to do. But when you get married, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to become like Christ did. Exactly in the same frame that Christ did when he came to the earth, what did he do? You, you, you kind of have to say it. He em- even though you know what it means. He emptied himself of all the grandeur that he had and he became a bond slave. That's what Jesus did. So when a man goes into marriage... He is not supposed to bring in all the things supposedly that the way he did it or the way he likes it or it has to be this way or I want it that way. 
He's supposed to empty himself and take upon himself the form of what? What is he supposed to become? Well, we're going to get into that. Who is he supposed to be? But he is supposed to empty himself. He's supposed to be like Christ and empty himself. That way, when he does that, he's there is not a woman in here that when a husband tells her, do it like my mama says, did it, <laughs> enjoys hearing that. They don't want to hear, cook it like mama cooked it. Do you understand that? You know, they don't always want to be compared to mama. Do you understand what I'm saying? So you, you empty yourself the way that Christ emptied himself. It says, um, let's see, so ought men to love their wives even as their self. No man ever yet hated his own flesh, but he loves his own flesh. So why would you empty yourself? Why would, why, I think if people knew today what it meant to be married, they might reconsider it sometimes. <laughs> if you empty yourself of all the things that you knew from the past and mom and daddy's marriage, if you go into your marriage with the same guidelines that mom and dad had for marriage, you can be a flop. Because mom and dad's marriage is not your marriage, and your spouse is not mama. And that's where a lot of marriages fail. People come into it and they think our marriage is going to be just exactly like mom and dad's marriage. Well, it'll never be like mom and dad's marriage. Because they're two different people. Let me tell you a couple of other things about it. Listen to these people's names and see if they mean anything to you. Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Mussolini, Ferdinand Marcos, Kim Jong-un. Who, who were they? Dictators. Now, every woman in here that's ever heard me teach, what is one of the main things that I teach that a woman should do? Submit to your husband. Every one of them was very clear on it. There was no hesitation in what that I say that they should do. That's why I say, guys, you shouldn't be concerned. But, but, Jesus was no dictator. Amen. There's not one place that you could compare Jesus to one of these guys. He was not a dictator. He was not a do-it-this-way kind of guy. He was not a demand that anybody do anything. Anybody ever see Jesus demand that someone do something? He, he never did. You will not find a greater advocate probably in the whole wide world on wives submit. You probably will never find one on believing that the Bible says wives are supposed to submit. But then on the flip side of the coin, you'll never find a greater advocate on that Jesus is not a dictator, and he's not mean, and he's not hard. 
And he's not commanding that a man makes his wife do things. Because anybody that has painted that picture of Jesus has painted you a wrong picture. Amen. And to try to make you do things is not Jesus' character at all. It's not the character of Jesus. Jesus did not come into the earth with an agenda of making man do anything. He didn't come here for that. What did he come here? What are his characteristics? I have listed a few that the Lord dealt with me about sharing. So I'm going to share them with you, and you can pick and choose if you like any of them, and if you don't, then then you can do with the ones that you want to throw out, you can throw out, okay? So I'm just going to read you some of them. But I think, personally, I think we probably may add this to our, our things about uh, in the church before people say, I do, take. The first one is, Jesus was faithful, He emptied himself of the other stuff, but this is some of the things we may want to fill ourselves with once we've been emptied. If we want to know Jesus' character, once we've emptied ourselves, men, of the other stuff that we were, faithful means you're no longer a boy. You're a man. You don't always find faithful boys, but you do find faithful men. You can't always depend on a boy, but you can depend on a man. When you say I do, you have to say I do and realize I take on the responsibility of a man. That means I take on the responsibility of I have to get a job, I have a house, I have a family. These things. When you say I do, you become faithful. Keith talked about it a little bit last night, being faithful. He talked about another side of it. But that is one of the characteristics of the Lord. Jesus, if he tells you something, I'll just read some of the things I wrote down. If he tells you something, you can count on it. Is that Jesus? If a boy tells you something, can you always count on it? But if a man of God tells you something, can you count on it? You should be able to count on it if a man of God tells you something. So we emptied ourselves of stuff that we were before when we were a boy. But the minute that we said, I do, this is what we're filling ourselves up with. We're filling ourselves up with faithfulness. We've become a man of God the minute that we said, I do. We're going to be faithful. We're going to be, number two, prayerful. Maybe we were a boy and we never prayed one day in our life for anybody. But the minute that we got married, we have a responsibility of a spouse and a family now. Maybe you never were a prayer, but Jesus was a prayer. And you're supposed to be, as Christ is to the church, you're supposed to be a prayer now. You may say, my wife prays, that's good. But you are supposed to be a prayer now. And you're supposed to pray for your family. Jesus prayed, so when you say, I do, what do you become? A prayer. prayer. And you should wake up every morning and receive direction from the Lord for your family. What are we supposed to do today, Lord? Where do we go today? Do we do this or do we do that? You should hear from God for your family that day. 
You empty yourself of the other things and the unfaithful things that you were and the ungodly life that you had. And you wake up in the morning and you pray. That's number two. Number three, you're a leader. Jesus was a leader. Let me read you a quote that I found that I really liked. To handle yourself, use your head. To handle others, use your heart. That was Eleanor Roosevelt. And that's the way it should be. Jesus never made anyone submit to him. They chose to follow him. He never made anyone follow him. They chose to follow him. And that's the way it should be with us. He was a leader among leaders. People followed him around. They hung around him. They loved being around him. Why? Because he was a love leader. He was a leader. Leading is work. It takes... Okay, I remember... When Keith and I first got in the ministry, I didn't want to be in the ministry. How many of you remember that story? I said, no, I'll work a job and you can be in the ministry. You're doing just fine. And I'm doing just fine. But really, we we weren't doing just fine because you can't be going one direction and me going another direction. And he kept telling me, Phil... You are an example. And I'd say, I don't want to be an example. <laughs> and he'd come in and, and I'd want to watch something or, or wear something or do something. And he'd say, Phil, you are an example. I'm a teacher at Rama now. People are looking at you. And I'd say, I'm not a teacher at Rama now. Nana, nana, nana. <laughs> you are a teacher at Rama now. Not me. And I don't want to be a leader and I don't want to be an example. (laughs) So if you want to lead and you want to be an example, you go be a leader and you go be an example. But I'm not going to be one. But you know what? It wasn't just him telling me that. And that's the way it usually is. It was the Lord telling me. And sometimes our spouse tells us and we get mad at our spouse instead of getting mad at the Lord. Because it's easier. Because you really, you know you shouldn't get mad at the Lord, so you just get mad at your spouse. Because it's easier. But you know what? Every person in this room is a leader whether they want to be or not. I mean, you're the leader of your house. You're probably the leader at your work because that's the way Christians are. They rise up to the top. And they're leaders and they're examples. And whether you want to be or not, you're a leader. And you're an example. And people see what you do. Everywhere you go, they already know who you are. You don't have to tell them. Number four, humble. Jesus was humble. He let other people sing his praises. He didn't sing his own praises. He took on the form of a servant. He could have demanded even angels minister to him. But he didn't. He was humble. 
He wasn't always demanding things of people. These are things we fill ourselves up with. I mean, these will work for the ladies too. But we were talking about the guys emptying themselves to be the head. Then the next thing is wise. Jesus was very, very wise. He knew his ministry was more important than his life. He knew and saw the big picture and long term. He led with the realization that his actions would affect the future and the life of himself and others. And that's what somebody, a man that enters into marriage does. They have to realize then that their actions not only affect their self, but it affects the other people in their family. It affects their spouse. It affects their kids. They're wise enough to know that then. They empty themselves of making rash decisions. They can't just pop up and say today, okay, we're moving. Well, do you have a job? Well, no, we're just moving. Well, do you have any money? Well, no, we're just moving. They empty themselves of just being impulsive and not being led of God. They're wise now. They empty themselves of just being that boy and they become a man now. And it's the reason that people don't understand this is because kind of like what Keith was saying last night about they just see marriage as a piece of paper. They don't understand that something spiritual happens to them when they say, I do. People don't understand the natural realm and the spiritual realm. But when you say, I do, you enter into a different realm in your life. You are graced then. You are anointed then. You are called then for that job. God anoints you to be the leader. God anoints you to be the head. And if you'll even put forth a tiny, 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 the least amount of effort, you'll be able to empty yourself of all the bad things you didn't want to do before. Because the grace is there now to do it. Amen. And then if you even try a little bit, the grace will be there to do the other things and the other stuff will be pushed out. There won't be any place for it. Because that wisdom will rise up in you and something will come up in you and say, you know what? I can't just think about me now. I got a wife now. I got kids now. I can't just load up the truck and move to Beverly like I used to would have done. I got to think about the results of other people that this is affecting now. Used to, I might have just went and laid out on the beach for three days and taken off my job and skipped work and called in sick. But you know what? I got a wife now. I can't do this anymore. I got to be wise. Jesus was wise that way. All right? Adaptable. These are just some words the Lord gave me when I woke up one morning. So if you don't like them, talk to him about it. Okay? Adaptable. He had grumbling disciples. He had wind. He had storms. He had, you name it. He had Pharisees. He had Sadducees. He had it. But through all of this, he kept his peace. 
and he diffused every situation that he came up against. Lack of no food, circumstances, people wanting to kill him. He never lost his... He was adapted. He adapted himself to every situation without losing his cool. Didn't matter what was going on. He'd just say, okay, God, what do we do now? He never went spastic. That's what a true leader, God, hero does. That's what you as men are graced to do. You never have to lose your cool because there's a greater one living inside of you that has given you all the answers. All you got to do is just stop just for a second, look up to him and say, okay, God, I ain't never been here before. What do I do? You think Jesus had ever been where he had to feed 5,000 people before? No. You think he'd ever been where there were storms out on the water? I mean, there were so many things he'd never been before. But the Lord would show him every time what he had to do. And he didn't lose his cool. And he didn't blame it on his disciples. Make them take the responsibility for mistakes. And he didn't send them out in front of him to deal with it. He dealt with it. He was the head of his house. He was the head of the team. He dealt with it. He adapted to every situation that arose. And he looked to the Lord how to deal with it. Somebody came up to him. He, well, how do you deal with this crazy woman? How do you deal with this? How do you deal? He adapted to every situation that arose. And he never lost his cool about it. He listens. He listens. I thought about when Abraham reasoned with him, with the Lord, about 50 people. 40 people, 30 people. He didn't even get aggravated at him. He just said, okay, 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 okay. And he just kept coming down. I think that's the way guys lay heads of the house. Maybe your wife comes and she says, can I have five new pair of shoes? Can I have ten new pair of shoes? Can I have... No, I'm just joking. Just joking. But you don't have to get mad about it. You can at least reason together about it. You understand what I'm saying? You don't have to lose your cool about it. You can reason together about things without blowing your top about the things. You have the ability to listen without going ballistic about it. Jesus could listen. He could sit and listen to them. Giving. Jesus was a giver. He gave of himself. All the time. Even the children loved him. He would stop and go with people and pray for people. It would mess up his whole day. He'd go from this place to that place. He was always giving. Didn't matter if it was in his plans or not. If the Lord said do it, he'd stop and go do it. He was giving. And giving money. When they accused him of something, he said, uh, he was talking about giving to the poor. He said, were you talking about us giving to the poor? Because they were always giving to the poor. Jesus was a giver. He gave his heart. He gave his money. The guy should be a leader in giving. He should be the head heart of, okay, what are we, what are we going to give? You ready to give? What, what are we going to give? Amen. He shouldn't be the one that's so tight and saying, I, I, I got to have this. No. It's for me. I got to have a new, new bass boat or I got to have a new this. We're not giving. No. 
It, he should be the heart of giving. Then you're never short on anything. The wise comes in here. If you give, then you always have plenty. Amen. Amen. He, Jesus was a giver. He gave us his life. He gave everything he had. And he would give it for you again. He emptied himself and he filled himself with these things. And he was forgiving. He said on the cross at the worst time, he said, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. He was quick to forgive the woman that committed adultery. What did he do? He didn't even make her feel condemned at all. She didn't walk away and feel condemned at all. What are we supposed to do? What, what are the heads supposed to do? They're supposed to empty themselves and fill themselves with something. They should be forgiving. They should be quick to forgive. They should be, have Jesus character. Jesus was very forgiving. What if your wife does go out and buy those 26 pair of shoes that you didn't reason with her about buying? Huh? Huh? What's going to happen, Andrew? Huh? <laughs> What's going to happen? What if she says something about you in front of people that you really didn't want said? Huh? It's mighty quiet. What if she does something you really didn't want done? What did Jesus do? What if it is as far as adultery? What is it? the grace on you at that point in time to, to do. It is to forgive. He emptied himself and took upon himself the form of a slave and that is what guys are supposed to do. They're not supposed to keep the things that they were before they were married to where they would be so flighty and fly off the handle and say, you can't do that. You can't have that money to do that. You can't. They have to realize they are a different person the minute that they said, I do. They have a different responsibility the minute that they said, I do. And the last one is loving in this section. Loving. And I'm going to read you something I found in Brother Hagen's book because I thought it said it really, really good. Paul tells husbands, love their wives. Well, obviously, I'm just reading from Brother Hagin's book. Well, obviously, they have some love for them, natural love for one another, or they would not have ever married to begin with. But Paul's not talking about natural love here, because he said, even as Christ also loved the church. He's got Ephesians 5.25. That's way beyond natural love. That far exceeds human love. Christ loved the church with a divine love. It was divine love in operation. The letter written to the Ephesians could not apply to sinners. An unsaved man could not love his wife as Christ loved the church. That would be impossible. He doesn't have that kind of love inside of him. He has natural human love for his wife, but not a divine love. In the book of Ephesians, Paul is talking to Christians, where both husband and wife are Christians. Notice the Christian husbands have a potential to love their wives in a way that sinners cannot love their wives because the love of God, the God kind of love has been shed abroad in their hearts by the Holy Ghost. 
Now, natural human love can be selfish. Even though the love of God may be in your heart as a Christian, you can still be selfish. If you're walking in the natural, more of the natural than you are the spiritual, then you will love selfishly. If you primarily are interested in yourself, but the God kind of love is unselfish. And I thought that said that really good. Because divine love is unselfish. And that's what he's talking about here. Jesus' love was unselfish. It was a very unselfish love. So, in looking at this, I thought about it. And I thought, Lord, that's a lot. You know, it's a lot to say, okay, in order for your marriage to be right, you have to be like Jesus in all these areas. But the thing about it is, the Lord is looking at our hearts. And He's graced everybody to be able to be every stage of their life at different parts of those things. And so I thought about, it's kind of a funny thing, because I thought about the different stages of marriage and the different stages of what Jesus did. And so we'll get into that. It's, um, he emptied himself. Then not only did he empty himself, so say you can't do that in your marriage and maybe you got every one of those things right and maybe you are unselfish. And Here, let me read them to you. Maybe you are uh, faithful and maybe you are prayerful and maybe maybe you are the perfect husband and being a leader and you're humble and you're wise and, and you are adaptable and you do listen and you are giving and you are forgiving and you are loving and your wife is still mean. Maybe you are. I don't know. Maybe you're just the perfect husband and you've got all those things down or you got 95% of them down. And your wife is still just plain mean like I was. You know, when Keith was trying, for real, Keith was trying to serve God and he was trying to do what God wanted him to do. Maybe he wasn't doing everything perfect then, but you know what? At least he was trying the best he knew. And that's all God cares about is that you're trying to do the best you, he's telling you to do and you're doing everything he's telling you to do. And that's what he was doing. He was, he was studying night and day. He was teaching at school. He was doing all those things. And I was saying no as loud as I could say it. Maybe that's what your wife was doing. I thought, so Lord, what do they do? Maybe that's what they're doing. What do they do? He said, oh, it's not complicated. Go back to Christ in the church. I said, okay. Okay, let's do that. In Colossians, I won't try to read it all to you. Colossians three nineteen, it says, that, you know, husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Sometimes that's difficult. I know Keith had plenty of opportunities to get bitter at me when I wouldn't do anything for the Lord. He's trying to serve God, and I didn't want to go to church. I didn't want to do anything. So bad so that Miss Aretha Hagen had to come to me and say, What are you doing? Now, you don't want me having to come to you and say that, do you? What, what are you doing? I mean, I was getting so far off that finally she cornered me one night in the service and she said, what are you doing? How come you're not in church? 
He's trying to serve God. What are you doing? And I'm like, duh. (laughs) So maybe you are doing all these things perfectly right. And um, your wife just ain't getting it. She just refuses to do it. Well, go back to Christ in the church. What did Jesus do for us even after Adam and Eve sinned? No laughing at me when I tell you. You all know. After he emptied himself and he came to earth and he became a man and he became a slave and he put up with man here on the earth and did all the things, then he had to go to hell for his wife. (laughs) Do you get it? Wasn't enough that he came and emptied himself for his wife and gave up everything he loved. He loved being with the Father. He loved his life with God. He loved his life in heaven. He gave up every bit of that for his wife. But that wasn't enough. His wife was a mess up. And she just kept on messing up. She refused to get it right. She refused to do anything right. She refused to do what he wanted her to do. Did he condemn her? Did he yell at her? Did he tell her she was no good? Did he tell her she would never amount to anything? Did he tell her she was a scumbag? Did he tell her she was a horrible misfit? Did he tell her anything? No. He went to the cross for her, got himself hung on a cross and beat with stripes and went to hell for her. So maybe you think your wife has really, really done you bad. It's time to go to hell for her. Not get a divorce. That's when people file for divorce. That's when the divorce papers come out. When there shouldn't be any divorces. It should be time for the man to go to hell for his wife. Amen. If we're to be, if the husband is to be like Christ is for the church, we messed up as a church. And he didn't throw anything in our face. He said nothing to us about it. He just went to the cross for us. And he wept tears. He cried. Yes, he was hurt. Yes, he was upset. Yes, he didn't want to do it. But he loved her so much. He was willing to pay that price for her. He loved her more than anything. That he emptied himself to marry her. He loved her so much that no matter how bad she messed up, he went to hell for her. He had faith for her by doing that. Because he did that, he believed in him doing that, just like what Keith said last night. He believed it could still get better. Somebody has to have some faith. 
and not quit? I truly believe in my heart. That's why I told Keith, I said, it's God's heroes. Men are God's heroes. And I almost played that song. I should have brought it with me looking for a hero. You remember that old song? Gotta have a hero. I'm looking for a hero. Can I find a hero? A man on a white stud horse, whatever the song was. It's an old song. God's looking for some heroes. And there's no question in my mind as to why the world thinks the way it does about men today. It's not right, guys. It is absolutely not right that women are not right either. Don't get me wrong. We have got some work to do, buddy. But, 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 you have to follow a leader. And what are you following? And if a guy is unwilling to empty himself of all the stuff that he had before he was married and he still has to have this and he still has to have this and he still has to have this and he still has to go do this and he still has to have his boys night out and he still has to go play this and he still has to go do this and he's unwilling to give up really anything for his wife. He's unwilling to pray for her. He's unwilling to sacrifice anything for her like Jesus did for the church. Then the first fight they have, he leaves. Where's the hero in that? Where's your sword? Where's your fight? Amen. Amen. It ain't right. There ain't no way you can make right out of it that maybe the woman's doing what she's doing. It wasn't right what I was doing to Keith, but I thank God today that I had a husband that didn't quit. Amen. Where would our churches be? Where would our ministry be? Just because I was being stubborn and rebellious, it would have been okay for him to say, okay, let's get a divorce. Where would we be today? I know I wasn't the greatest thing, but I know I have been some help since then. Praise the Lord. You see what I'm saying? You don't quit. You don't quit. You don't just throw in the towel. May I guarantee you there was many a night he felt like he went to hell and cried great tears. Because of what I was doing. But you don't quit. Somebody has to be strong and do that. And God made it so that the man was the head. He said that the husband was to be the head. As Christ was. He evidently made you strong enough to take the stripes. He evidently made you strong enough to be able to handle it. He said you were. He said you could handle it. So guess what? You can handle it. You can handle it. Something I thought was good, and I, and I threw it in here. He was, he's their protector also. I thought you would like this. John 18, verse 8, Jesus was talking, and he said, um, Jesus answered them, I told you that I'm he, therefore um, you seek me. Let these go their way. He was giving himself up. That's what I was talking about, giving. He was their protector. He said, take me, let them go. That's a leader. 
That's a guy that gives. Not throw somebody else under the bus. That's why you could respect him. That's why you could follow him. His next sentence says, that it might be fulfilled saying, of them that you gave me, I have lost not one. If God gave you your spouse, you should lose not one. Not one. God is a good God. And like Keith said last night about covenant, to me, when I look at marriage, I look at it as a person getting saved. Every time I look at it now. And I think God would feel the exact same way people getting a divorce or somebody backsliding. It would hurt his heart just exactly the same way. Because you're leaving the covenant. You've entered into the covenant with God when you get saved. You've entered into the covenant with your husband when you get married. It's the same thing. And it should mean some of the same things to you. It's that important. And it shouldn't be so quick and easy. I think that is the number one reason why there's so many divorces is because people go into it thinking, well, I can get a divorce. No, that word should never even enter your vocabulary. It should never even enter your thinking. It shouldn't be optional. So you went to hell far. Did you get out? Y'all got out of hell, right? I believe you did. I believe you got out of hell. And that woman of yours is still being a mess up. What about the church? Jesus went to hell for the church. You still mess up sometime? I know I have messed up sometime. So what does Jesus do now? Tells us. Your wife is still messing up today on a daily basis. So you fuss at her every day. Jesus comes and he fusses at you every single day. Carla, straighten up. Carla, straighten up. Carla, you got to straighten up, girl. You can't, I'm mad at you. I'm not going to talk to you for three days. Carla, straighten up. No, Jesus does not do that. What does he do? This is what he does. Romans 8, 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies and God who condemns. Christ Jesus who died, this is the NIV, more than that, who was raised to life and is seated at the right hand of God, is also what? Interceding for us. So, he gave up his glorious life with the Father for you, for the church, for his bride. His bride messed up, so he went to hell for her. She's still messing up. So what is he doing every day for her? He's making intercession for her. Continuously making intercession for her so that if she doesn't see everything right, or if she messes up, he's pleading her case to the Father. Praise God. Instead of fussing at her and bringing condemnation down on her, mm-hmm. 
He's interceding for her. Lord, help her see that. Lord, help her enlighten the eyes of her understanding so that she can see more truth in that area. Amen. Amen. Maybe, maybe she doesn't see it. I, I can't read her mind. Maybe she's not seeing everything that she needs to see. Amen. I know I see things differently. I know guys and girls see things. Help her see it. Interceding for her so that she sees it. Lord. Daily. That's what Jesus is doing for us. He's not condemning us. He's not putting us down. He's not reminding us daily of our faults. He's most of the time with me because I already know all my faults. He's telling me how good a job I'm doing. Good job, Phil. Good job. Appreciate you getting up there and doing that. I know how you feel about it, but appreciate you getting up there and doing it. Thank you for taking care of that. Does he do you that way? Yeah, sure he does. Does he do y'all that way? Sure he does. Thank you for coming all the way. You know, that's the way he is. He's looking for ways to love on you and wrap his arms around you because that's who he is. So to me, that is what a man's role in a marriage should be. They should empty themselves. And when things get really bad, they should just go to hell for their wife. Just do it. Whatever they need to do, they may need to do it. And it ain't going to be fun. You're going to sweat great drops of tears and blood. But you don't get a divorce. You do it. And when you make it through that, you intercede. Have I come down on the guys long enough? Is that good enough? Okay, so then I'll talk about the wife just a minute. Are you all ready? The guys can go shh. Just go a great big shh now. Yeah, yeah. When I started studying this time for the marriage meeting, I went into my office and I sat in my chair and I just got quiet because, you know, it's like what Keith has said so many times and what I've known and, and any minister knows. Unless you hear from God about what you're supposed to share, you don't got anything. And I started just being quiet and something came into my heart. And um, I said, no, Lord, I'm studying for the marriage meeting. And, and I kept kind of trying to drift away from it. But then I got pulled back into it. And I kept on studying it and kept on studying it and kept on studying it. And after I studied it, I told Keith, I said, you know what? I was trying to study for the marriage meeting, but this is what kept coming up to me. And because um, it was something I had been studying for years. And I said, every time I go to study, this just keeps coming up to me. And it just keeps coming up to me. And but then the Lord corrected me. And he said, no, this is for the marriage meeting. Yeah, you have been studying it, but this is, this particular thing is for the marriage meeting. And I want you to share it on that Tuesday night. So here it goes. He took me back to the Old Testament. Just in a flash. And he showed me his heroes, his faith heroes. And he showed me some of the greatest men in the Old Testament. Moses. Everybody knows who Moses is, right? How did Moses kind of get his start? First out of the gate, he killed somebody. Remember that? Anybody remember that? Yeah. Then not too long after that, he, uh, he uh, strikes a bush that he's supposed to do something else to, right? I mean, he wasn't, wasn't doing too good, right? Then what about Aaron, the high priest? How'd he do? 
Aaron, the high priest, him and Miriam murmured against Moses. Then Moses is gone for a few days, comes back, and what, what, did, he, what did he do? He had a golden calf there. Oh, those people did that. <laughs> those people did that. Then David. David, how'd David do? Now, are these some of the main people in the Old Testament? How did David do? Well, he had Bathsheba, and he fixed that situation with Bathsheba by killing her husband, Uriah. Right? Now, this is what the Lord brought to me, just like in an instant. If you've ever, the Lord's ever told you anything, this is the way he dealt with me about this. And he said, do you remember them? And I said, of course, Lord. And he said, um, do you recall that not one of them lost their place? Think for just a minute. They didn't lose their place. And this is what the Lord told me to do. Ephesians 5:33. However, NIV, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife, see, she must respect her husband. This is the Weist translation, Ephesians 5:22 through 33. I'm going to read it all. Ephesians 5:22. The wives being be putting yourselves in subjection with implicit obedience to your own husbands as unto the Lord. Because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. Nevertheless, as the church subjects itself in obedience to Christ, in this manner also the wives should subject themselves in obedience to their husband in all things. The husbands be loving your wives with a self a love self-sacrificial in its nature, in the manner in which Christ also loved the church and gave himself on behalf of it, in order that he might sanctify it, having cleansed it by the bath of the water in the sphere of the word, in order that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having a spot or a wrinkle or any such thing, but in order that it might be holy and unblameable. In this manner also ought husbands to love their wives as their own body. The one who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, even as Christ the church, because members we are of his body. Because of this, a man shall leave behind, say that with me, leave behind his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great. However, I am speaking with regard to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, also, as for you, let each one in this manner be loving his own wife as himself. And the wife, let her be continually treating her husband with deference and reverential obedience. Now, two things, and I'll get back to the other. Deference is a great word. When it comes to your spouse, it means if you have a difference of opinion, he wins. 
You might as well laugh. It's so anyway. That's what it means. That is the Bible. Did I just read the Bible? When it comes to difference of opinion about things that matter. Now, husbands, again, if you really love your wife and you're giving yourself far and it's something that doesn't really matter, you should be willing to give in. But if it's something that God told you and you're supposed to do, the woman should be ready to say, I, refer, I defer to you. But now, you know, if we're going to eat someplace, he's <laughs> like, what do you want to do? You know, or what do you want to do today? I'm not just deferring to him all day long. He would get very frustrated with me if I made him make every decision. Amen. Do you understand that? I mean, that would just be dumb. That would just be mean. But deferring to him when he says, Phil, we're supposed to start another church, or Phil, we're supposed to go here, or Phil, we're supposed to do this, or, or Phil, we're supposed to do this project, or Phil, you guys need to do this, or we need to change this in the ministry. Yes, we are in the ministry together, but when it comes to the ministry and it comes to doing things in the ministry, if he says God told him to do something, I am to defer to him. Does that make sense to you? Amen. If, if I were to come in here and say, no, I can hear from God too. I have the Holy Ghost. And I can hear from God too. Well, whose opinion matters? We both have the Holy Ghost. How do you decide who wins? We're not co-pastors. He's the pastor and I help him. See how quiet it is? Amen. <laughs> because you can't have two heads. Somebody at some point has to defer. And I defer to him. That's what this is talking about. Treating her husband with deference. I have to defer to him. Because somebody has to have the final say. And it should be the person that is the leader. But if the leader's still acting like a boy, it ain't no wonder she don't want to defer. Amen. <laughs> you see what I mean? Okay, and then the other one is reverential obedience. You're doing it out of respect to God. Reverential obedience. You're not just only doing it for Him, because guess what? You're not just only going to answer to Him. The day is coming. I had to learn, and I kind of learned it the hard way. Keith didn't write that verse. <laughs> he didn't write that verse. And you have to realize that. I'm going to have to answer to the Lord that it said deference and reverential obedience. Because sometimes I have good ideas for the ministry. But he says the Lord didn't tell me that. And you know what? It's still his ministry. Amen. See how quiet you are? You won't even agree with me on it. <laughs> it's nothing to agree about. I know I'm going to stand before the Lord. And guess what? If he missed it, I'm going to be in the clear. That's right. That's right. I told him. What I felt like, I gave him what the Lord told me, 
And if he says, that's not what I got, then that's all I can do. Do you understand that? There's no reason for a fight over it. There's no reason for losing our marriage over it or our salvation over it or half the ministry over it. Because you know what? It's still his church. And he still has to answer to God for this church. Amen. Amen. Do you understand that? And whether you want to admit it or not, your husband still has to answer to God for that marriage or not. Whether he's doing it right or not, he's still going to answer for it. That's right. If he's doing it wrong, he's going to answer for it. If he's doing it right, he's going to answer for it. Doesn't matter. He's still going to answer for it. If he's doing it right, he's going to answer for it. If he's doing it wrong, he's going to answer for it. But I'm not going to fight with him over it. Do you understand that? It's not worth it. Be wise enough to know it's not worth the fight. You know, I I still have to defer because the Bible tells me to defer. Mm -hmm. Not just Keith. So I looked at these things. And this is the sentence that the Lord gave me when he told me it was for the marriage meeting. Women are justifying rebellion today because their husbands have made mess-ups. Women are justifying rebellion today because their husbands have made mess-ups. They're justifying that they don't have to submit to them or defer to them or have reverential obedience to them because they messed up. God did not pull one of the men in the Old Testament because they messed up. He kept them in their place. You are not your husband's judge. God is. And you don't want to stand before the Lord and say, I judged my husband, so therefore I didn't have to submit to him. You don't want to do that. If God thinks he's still good enough, you should think he's still good enough. Because you know what? Forgiveness works for your husband just like it does for you. And he could have repented, even if he did it yesterday. And maybe, I don't know what happened, but it doesn't really matter. David committed adultery. Moses killed somebody. David killed somebody. Did your husband kill somebody? (laughs) Ladies? Do you see what I'm saying? So quit looking for, see guys, I told you you they weren't going to get off that easy. Quit looking for reasons to rebel. Okay? Listen to this verse. Hebrews 13.4. NIV. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. But the last part of that is what I want you to get. For God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. Well, if God is judging that, what right do we have judging it? We really don't have any right judging it. And God may see things totally different than we see things. And I still don't totally know why he said this applied to this meeting, but it did. And if he kept those men in their place, the gifts and callings of God are without repentance, irrevocable. So you being a husband is irrevocable. Say it. It's irrevocable. So, as a wife, you shouldn't be able to rebel because they messed up. 
that make sense? Okay, so in summary here, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. Guys, who emptied themselves for you? Jesus. Three people know. <laughs> who emptied himself for you? Jesus. All right, so who should you empty yourself for? Five people. Who should you empty yourself for? Yeah, okay. Who went to hell for you? Jesus. So who should you go to hell for? Yeah. Who makes daily intercession for you? Jesus. So who should you intercede for? Now the women. God judges so we don't judge. If you forgive, you'll be what? It's not our place to make them do penance. You get it? A few of you got it right off. It's not our place to make them do penance. Got it? Therefore, we do not have a reason or a right not to respect them. If God respects them, we should respect them. Right? Well, I got through my seven pages. Glory to God. I know it wasn't normally the way I do it, shouting and dancing and laughing and having fun. But, you know, you have to obey what the Lord tells you to do. And um, I, I think it is very important that we as a church, worldwide church, begin to take back what the devil is trying to steal and that people can actually see what a godly man is supposed to be. You know, it wouldn't hurt for the world to see men opening car doors again, pulling out chairs for women. It wouldn't hurt the world to see men being heroes to women again. Then they wouldn't be maybe so quick to want to be women. I'm telling you, there's too many stinking men that want to be women these days. And so you men better step it up, step it up, step it up. Stand up with me. Stand up with me. Glory to God. This ministry has been brought to you today free of charge by the partners of More Life Ministries and Faith Life Church. If you would like to help send this word to others at no charge, you can become a word sender today. For more information, visit our website at morelife.org.